Heritage Park Baptist Church, we make apprentices to Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit heritagepark.org. If you've got a Bible, Luke chapter 12 is where we're going to be. I'm going to invite you to open up and uh, turn there, Luke chapter 12. <clears throat> if you need a Bible, you can put it in your lap. There's some on the sides of the tech booth. If you are a uh, user of the Bible app, you can open the app and find our live event and track along that way. That'd be great. Um, we are in a series about these pillars of our faith, these things that we depend on, lean on, or building the house on, so to speak. And uh, in light of that, we're just kind of going kind of big chunk of doctrine by big chunk of doctrine um, through uh, some important confessions, some important truths. And the reason why these continue to be important is because um, everything else may go chaos in our world. These things stand. Last week, we talked about the Trinity. There is one God um, existing eternally in three persons. For us, um, as a church family, that is an important, important thing. It's the foundation of everything. It's why we started with it. Uh, and just based on your feedback, and by the way, um, my, like my email works and the phone rings up here at the church and that kind of thing. So feel free to say, dude, I didn't understand that. Or, hey, I've got a question or whatever. A uh, few of you did this week. I was really grateful for that. Just based on the feedback, though, like one of the big highlights coming out of last week was it's good to know that there is a God who is mysterious. Like there is something about him that we don't fully comprehend or fully grasp. We can know him, but knowing him in full is going to take an eternity. And so, and I would just say it, I won't speak for you. I'll say it for me. Um, if I comprehended God in his entirety, I would be tempted to try to manage him or manipulate him instead of bow in worship to him. So um, today we're going to pick up the first person of the Trinity, the Father, and invite you to Luke uh, chapter 12. I'll just give you four kind of words to think about as it relates to God our Father. Let's uh, state the doctrine first, if you will. Here it is, that the powerful and perfect Heavenly Father rules the universe. That's the idea that we're after today. The powerful and perfect Heavenly Father uh, rules the universe. Luke chapter 12, Jesus is teaching. Here's what he says. He said to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, about your body, what you'll put on. I mean, Jesus says crazy stuff like don't be anxious. Here we go. Uh, verse 23, uh, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap, nor um, have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are they, or you, excuse me, than the birds? And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies. I just pause here. Ironically, what do we know from medicine? Being anxious, carrying a lot of anxiety, does it add time to your life? No, it actually, I mean, it quite literally shortens your life. Okay, here we go. Um, verse 27, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, uh, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? I want to start there and uh, just have um, kind of four words uh, over, over the next few minutes here fall out from this passage and the verses to come. Um, when we think about the powerful and perfect Heavenly Father rules the universe, I want us to first of all, and I think this is how the Bible talks about it, um, it helps us. The Bible talks about our Father is the source the source of all things, okay? So that means two things. Number one, he's the creator. He's the creator. Just little, little parentheses, I won't go long. Um, most people, when they think about God as creator, have in their mind conversations about how he brought the world into being. That is not 
um, how the Bible typically talks about God being the creator. Um, uh, that he created and the purpose for which he did so, uh, those are primary, but it is not the how conversation. So let's just set that aside and say, so I want to talk about uh, today g- that God is the creator and he created from nothing. Like these things came into being from nothing. Hebrews 11 verse 3, you can go look it up later. By faith, we believe that God made um, the heavens and the earth, um, and he did so from nothing, meaning like there, there was nothing that God had. They pulled off a shelf. It's like, oh, good. I got some of this left over. Let's make sure and put this together in the casserole of the universe. This is not that. God from nothing made. So in Genesis chapter 1, we have God who speaks and light happens. Like, this is the kind of thing. God makes this out of nothing. If you are a nerd and want to write this down, it's creation. Some of you are like, wait a minute. I feel targeted. Um, It's creation ex nihilo, meaning like from nothing that existed. The alternative to that that is materialism, that there is something that exists eternally alongside of God, not as powerful as God, not as awesome as God, not as majestic as God, but something that exists eternally alongside of God that he then uh, pulls from in order to make the heavens and the earth. That's not how the Bible talks about it. It's how Stephen Hawking talks about it. Because gravity is what is eternal, right? In his world. This is not that. From, he created from nothing. Um, he, it is still Trinitarian. I just pause here again. One little, more little rabbit hole. It is still Trinitarian. In the, in the Genesis account, uh, God is speaking. The Spirit is hovering over the water, and He speaks the Word. In John chapter one, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, he was with God from the beginning. He's been there the whole time, and nothing was made uh, without Him that wasn't made. So I mean, like you've got all of this together. The whole Godhead is involved. That, that's important. Here's, um, here's the uh, kind of the, the next part is that he did so out of uh, the purpose, if you will, is to reflect the glory of God in a flourishing world. He created from nothing and he created for his glory. He created for his glory because some people think, oh, well, whew, how does God put on display his glory? Well, he obviously needs something. So he created you and me. Listen, if God needed you and me to reflect his glory, like that was a really bad play because how well do we do with this? World's kind of chaos, kind of broken up here. It's not, not, but he's created us for his glory to reflect glory in a flourishing world. And so when we say it's not from need, but out of goodness, out of goodness, the goodness we just sung about, this is how we need to think about creation and it's how we need to think about God as our creator. He did not create out of need. He created out of his goodness. And let me just try to um, help us think through this. How many of you have been in a setting in nature where you've looked at something and you said, holy smokes, that is unbelievably beautiful. Anybody with me on this? Yeah. You like, you see a mountain and and you're like, like it just explodes onto the sky and the the way that you're looking at it. And it's like, wow. Some of you have been to the Grand Canyon and you look and you're like, you don't walk up there and think, boy, nice hole in the earth. You think this, this, this is an amazing thing. Or um, one of my favorites, you sit by a body of water and if it gets still, all of a sudden that body of water becomes a mirror. And you just think, this is, this is incredible. Nobody makes mountains or canyons, or bodies of water out of need. 
God's not going to do it that way. He does it to put on display his goodness so that you and I could enjoy his glory and live for it in light of that. And let me just bring it down to you and to me personally, how God does this. The Bible says in Psalm 139 that he knit you together in his mother's, in your mother's womb. In your mother's womb. So, so like, I, I mean, I don't knit. Let me just say that. I, you get, in theory, you could knit out of need, but most of the time, and I think this is broadly true, you knit out of something that you want to do for somebody else. I'm going to make a scarf. I'm going to make a hat. I'm going to make so for somebody else, right? This is my goodness being on display. I'm bringing this. God knit you together for the same reason. So much so that, uh, looked it up this week, uh, your DNA, like if you took the strands of your DNA and strung them out, 67 billion miles. That's enough to get you to Pluto and back 70 times. You would have 70 round trips to Pluto. That's not out of need, folks. That's just out of creative genius and goodness going, oh, watch this. For his glory. So the the, um, proper response in light of that, so much of our worldview comes out of that single statement, God is our creator, and the proper response to that is allegiance. If God, you made me, I'm going to be allied to you. My allegiance is yours. And if your goodness is running after me, like we just sang about, my allegiance is yours. But not just creator. He's also the sustainer. If, if the creator um, brings forth our allegiance, uh, it's a good reminder that he's also our sustainer. And this is the kind of stuff Jesus is talking about in the passage we just read. Um, he says in verse 24, consider the ravens. They don't sow to reap. They neither have storehouse nor market. And yet God feeds them. What does that mean? That God is actively involved in this world. He is actively involved in this world. He's got it. He knows what's going on. Um, he's talking about birds. He's talking a little bit later in, in the passage. He's talking about grass. If God so clothes, like God is the one who does this. If he so clothes the grass, the alternative to that would be something um, that would people typically call deism. I told you this would be a little heady, but just say with me. Deism is this idea. Uh, it was quite popular in the 1700s. In fact, several of our founding fathers were kind of prescribed deists. And I'm not saying that to say um, that they were bad people. I'm saying that to say we are functional deists at times. Here's what, here's what a deist believes, that God spun the world up, threw it out there into the universe, put natural laws in place, and then said, good luck, kids. Y'all have fun. He's creator, but he's not involved. He's disengaged. He's left it up to us. There are times when we need to be reminded God is actively involved in the world. And more than that, he's actively involved in my world, your world. He didn't just spin it up and put you out there and go, I'll see you in about 70 or 75 years. Hang in there. He's actively involved in the world. He clothes uh, the, the grass. He feeds the birds. Colossians chapter 1, um, Paul writes this. He says he is actively, like in this moment, holding together everything by the word of his power. I mean, just think about that. Like gravity is doing gravitational things at 9.8 meters per second squared because Jesus today said, gravity, you're going to work today. Like in this moment, gravity is doing gravity things because Jesus is holding it together by the word of his power. What does that mean? Well, bring it down to the atomic level. Like 
you got protons and neutrons and electrons spinning and all of that's happening. Why? Because Jesus is holding the world together by the word of his power. Like if he sneezed, you would have some serious problems here. And if God's holding the world together on the biggest of scales, and by the word of his power is holding the world together on the smallest of scales, then he can hold you together too. He's the sustainer. So it doesn't sound quite as crazy when Jesus comes along and says, hey, y'all, don't be anxious. The proper response to this is, this is reliance. If God's the creator brings forth our allegiance, the proper response to God being our sustainer is reliance, reliance. I'm going to trust you. I'm telling you, don't be anxious. And our response is, eh, okay, I'll work on that. I'll need your help, but I'll work on that. Second part. God is our source. The Father is our source. But secondly, he's also relational. Look at verse 29. I mean, do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink um, or be worried. There it is again. Uh, For all the nations of the world, those who don't know God, all the nations of the world seek after these things, but your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. He is relational. What does that mean? He knows what we need. He knows what we need. Did you see that in verse 30? Your Father knows that you need them. He does. He's got it. Um, He knows what we need because he knows where you are. And he knows what's going on. Um, And he he knows, like, the, the things that are kind of in your current situation, the things that were in your situation, and the things that are coming to your situation. He knows. He knows what you need. Just this morning, I read Genesis 16. Um... Hagar um, is sent away uh, from the camp by Abraham and Sarah and goes out into the wilderness and expected full on to die of starvation or dehydration or both. And God meets her out in the wilderness and says, hey, I got you. It's going to be all right. And she said, you are the God who sees me. This relational father sees you. He knows what's going on. He knows what's happening. Um, He knows where you are. And not for a moment are you unseen. Psalm 121, beautiful, beautiful psalm. The poet says this. He who watches over Israel does not slumber or sleep. You slept. He didn't. He's been watching over you. Secondly, under this, a God commands this. Do you see instead seek his kingdom? And he says, uh, you don't have to worry about seeking this other stuff. Just seek him and seek his kingdom. Why? Because his desire is to be found. If God were to command to, uh, for us to seek him and then were to go hide somewhere beyond Pluto, that would be really cruel. That would not be good. But instead, what do we have? We have a God who desires to be found. <clears throat> His heartbeat burning in his heart is a desire for relationship with you and with me. And so when he says, seek me, he intends to be found by us. When he says, seek his kingdom, it's not as if he's like, ha, 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 ha. No, no, he's not playing a game. His goodness is on display by saying that because he wants this for us. He could, he could have called himself 
and, and, and displayed himself as the Almighty, because he is. He could have said, I am the just one. I am the rock. He could have said all those things. And he did about all, uh, he did say those in parts about himself. But you know what the, I mean, Jesus, when he comes to the earth, do you know how he spoke about God the most? Not justice, not mercy, not even savior. 189 times in the gospels, he calls God father. Why? Because our God is a relational God and he desires relationship with you. You want to picking up on what was said earlier. You want to change the label over your life? You may have grown up in a world where you said you were unwanted, but this isn't true of God. He wants you. In fact, he's command. He wants you so much. He's commanding you to seek him because he wants to be found by you. He desires to be found. He's not hiding. Third thing, verse 32. This may be my favorite verse in Luke. I'm just going to let you know, okay? So if I get all fired up up here, this is mine. Fear not, little flock. Verse 32. Fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God is generous. It is his good pleasure to give. Our father is the source of all things. He's our creator and sustainer. He is a relational God. We can know him and he is generous toward us. It is his good pleasure to give. So I don't know how many of you grew up this way. Um, We had a saying in our house that if somebody uh, woke up in a foul mood, we would say that they woke up on the wrong side of the bed. Yeah. Some of you grew up with that. Some of you experienced that this morning. Some of us live with God that way. Based on any number of things that could be true about our lives or experiences that we've had in our lives. Some of us live with God that way. And the question is always like cracking the door open like, God, what's it going to be like today? Are there eggshells that I need to walk on or is it a good day? Have you had coffee yet? You know, this is how we approach God. But listen, his disposition is clear. Fear not, little flock. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Good pleasure to give. Good pleasure to give. He is generous. His disposition is goodwill towards you and towards me. You never have to wonder um, what kind of mood he is in. He's made this very clear. It is his good pleasure to give. His disposition is goodwill. And listen, that goodwill speaks against our fear. Look at the very first phrase in verse 32. Fear not. Fear not. Some of you grew up with fathers. This would have been bad advice for. That's just the reality of the brokenness of our world. But here, you don't have to worry about his mood. Fear not, little flock. I love the little flock part because it's like, it's like that crazy aunt at the uh, family reunion comes up, grabs your cheek. You're like, I haven't seen you in a decade and a half. Why are you touching me? Oh, come here. You're so cute. It's, in my mind, that's the same kind of thing. Jesus kind of grabs our face and squishes it a little bit. Hey, fear not, little flock. <laughs> Why? 
because it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Goodwill speaks against fear, but it also speaks um, for something. It speaks to our value. It speaks to our value because God intends to give. He's not going to entrust something to us um, that is not of value, and he's not going to entrust something of value to those that he doesn't value. So, so look back at verse 24. Um, Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. And then don't miss this phrase. Like if you're an underliner, you can pull out the pen and put it right here. And of how much more value are you than the birds? Like God takes care. I mean, you see this bird? It flies. It eats stuff. It poops on your windshield. I mean, this is the bird. God takes care of this bird. He'll take care of you. Why? Because you're of more value than even this. Earlier in the, uh, in, in the chapter, uh, up in verse 4, he's talking um, and he says, hey, you don't have to fear this person or that person. And then verse 6, he says, are not five fa- sparrows sold for two pennies? Because he wants, he wants to, hey, this is an offering that's going to be offered up here. Aren't five sparrows sold for just a couple of pennies here? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Put them all together, all these offerings together. You have more value than them. Students, you want to wear a label stepping into Tuesday? You can sleep all day tomorrow. You have my permission. You want to label, you want to wear a label stepping into Tuesday? Wear this label. I am of more value than many sparrows. The God of the universe who made me speaks over my life value. The corollary to that, just briefly, is that value overcomes our shame. Because the condemnation that we feel when we don't feel valuable or when we believe the lie that he doesn't value us, the condemnation that we feel, the shame that we feel, does the exact, I mean, shame is this, it's this kind of power. It, it empowers us to do the exact opposite of what would restore the relationship. Shame puts us on the run. It's why Adam and Eve hid. But God steps in and says, hey, here I am. Here I am. Where are you? Come, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Come on. His, that value overcomes our shame. So the thing we need to do in that moment is run right towards God. When we find out that happens, that receives, he receives us. And I'll just, I'll do this. Last thing on this. <laughs> Again, some of you grew up, well, some, some of you grew up with a dad who was awesome. You're like, I get God as Father. Amazing. Some of you didn't. Either way, Jesus says this to you. Hey, this is like Matthew 7. It says it in a place in Luke 2, but he says this. Hey, if your son comes to you and he's like, hey, Dad, I'm kind of hungry. Can I have some fish? You won't give him a cobra, a snake, and go, here, go play with this for a while. It'll be all right. Oh, well, he comes to you he's like, Dad, Dad, can I please have some bread to eat? You won't give him a stone and go, just gnaw on this. It'll be fine. And then he says this, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, this is the phrase, how much more? How much more does your heavenly father know how to give good gifts to those who ask him? So you, you grew up with a dad who was awesome, fantastic. How much more? Like how much more is your heavenly father perfect than your earthly dad, even though he was great? Some of you grew up with a dad, not, not great. Okay, how much more? 
The temptation is to take whatever dad version is in our minds and kind of project it up to God's size and go, oh, this is what God's like. Eh, that's wrong. You don't put God on the big projector and, and this is what it turns out to be. That's not it. God is the perfection of all of those things. How much more? How much more? He is generous toward us. Fear not, little flock. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Lastly, verse 33, 34. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that don't grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. God is, the father is imitable, meaning what? He is worth imitating. Jesus gives us these kinds of commands right here because these are the kinds of things that he did. He lets us know that out of... um, um, the generosity that he displayed to us and has given to us, we can be generous um, towards, um, our, towards him and towards others. He is worth imitating. What he did, we also do. It's why Jesus in John chapter 5 says, you want to know what I'm saying? I'm saying what I hear the Father say. You want to know what I'm doing? I'm doing what I see the Father doing. So when we look in his word and we um, listen to what he's saying and we see his work in and among the people of God, we do and say the things that we see God doing and saying. He's imitable, meaning he is worth imitating. It is how we learn to follow him. This is it. It is how we learn to, to walk step by step with Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, here's what it says. Therefore, be imitators or mimics of God. Don't miss this phrase, as beloved children. As beloved children. Not children trying to earn his love. There's a far difference, vast difference between a a child who's trying to earn the love of a father and how he or she will step into that relationship and a child who knows that, that they are loved and how they will step into that relationship. There's a task to perform. Those who are trying to earn the approval of a father will step into it one way. Those who already have the approval of the father will step into it a whole different way. As beloved children, mimic God. Be imitators of God as beloved children. We have these things in our brains called mirror neurons. Anybody? Mirror neurons? Nope? Okay, good. So uh, that's good. Um, it, it's one of the, there's been a ton of research and theories this way and that. They don't know a ton about them, but one of the things that they're learning, is, it's, it, especially in our younger days, it's, it's the way that we learn to recognize uh, uh, motivations of others and that kind of thing. It's, some people think it's, it's one of the ways that we can teach ourselves to be empathetic is to fire, learn to fire off these mirror neurons and that kind of thing. But let me just bring it down for you right here. You got a little kid sitting in a high chair. You crap, crack open the, the, uh, the Gerber. Hope it's not cream spinach because that stuff stinks as soon as you open it. Yes? Yeah, a couple of you are like, oh, I just threw up in my mouth a little bit. Um, you, you crack that open. Okay, you stick the spoon in, stir it up, right? And, and then you got the little kid here in front of you and you, get, and you go in like this. The kid's like, what's going on? What are you doing? Why are you sticking something in my face? That stuff stinks. What are you doing? And you start it. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Let's do it. Okay, and then you're like, okay, let's go with the airplane. Incoming. And the kid's still like, no, man, no. uh -uh." It's not until what happens. Every parent in here who's done this before, you know this happens. What do you have to do? You have to open your mouth. I don't know why this is the case. God made it this way so that every parent in here who has fed a child before, you stir that up, survive the initial wafting of whatever you have in front of you, start it up, and you go in, oh, here comes the train. Let's open it. Yeah, you know, and you open your mouth, and then the baby goes. (laughs) 
they learn from watching our faces. They keep their eyes on our faces and so learn. We keep our eyes on his face and we learn. He's worth imitating. And this is how we learn to follow. We keep our eyes on his face. He is worth imitating. Be imitators of God as beloved children. You're not born a child of God. You come into that unique relationship by putting your trust in Jesus, by giving your life to him, and he gives you forgiveness and freedom and a life that lasts forever and a family to be a part of. If that's you today and you need to make that decision, I'd love to visit with you about that. I'm going to offer a prayer, and then we're going to stand and sing another song. If you want to talk about that, you can make your way to the back. I'd love to visit with you about that. Um, And if you've got something else we can pray for, there'll be some of us back there to pray. But let me just offer a prayer here and invite you to, in this moment, put your eyes on him. Keep looking at his face. And then we'll take a moment to respond. Let's do that. Um, Father, please, in this moment, uh, settle it down on us. Don't let the truth uh, be snatched up. There's an enemy who would love for that to be the case. But instead, let us keep our eyes on you. Let the things that uh, we need to hear today be heard. Let let the, the realities of the life um, that you are inviting us to be clear. Make them so clear. We'll give all this to you in Jesus' name. Everybody say amen and amen.